We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. You are listening to Stender, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts, please visit jcastnetwork.org. To share your thoughts about this podcast or others, please visit facebook.com slash jcastnetwork. Happy Black History Month. It uh, has been a uh, trying and frustrating and saddening and challenging uh, few weeks here in Virginia. Uh, And I want to spend a few moments today talking about uh, the current moment uh, in which we find ourselves and uh, perhaps offer some uh, Jewish wisdom about uh, the direction we might take forward. To just bring everybody up to speed who uh, is either uh, not up to speed in this room or who might uh, eventually be listening to the sermon in cyberspace, Uh, About two weeks ago now, uh, it was revealed that uh, the governor of Virginia, Ralph Northam, uh, in his uh, medical school yearbook, uh, among the pictures on the page, uh, featured an image of an individual uh, wearing blackface makeup, uh, standing and smiling next to uh, someone dressed uh, in a Ku Klux Klan robe and hood. Uh, The governor initially... uh, acknowledged to having been in the photograph, uh, and then a couple of days later uh, amended or retracted that statement to say that he was not in that photograph, but that he had in the past uh, appeared in blackface, uh, which uh, just as kind of a, I think, somewhat humorous aside, is sort of an interesting uh, uh, strategy to take. There was a, a, a satirist who wrote the next day uh, a kind of you know fake quote from Governor Northam said, "Of all the times I appeared in blackface, I'm pretty certain that that wasn't one of them." So that's where, and there were immediate and swift calls from all quarters, including and especially the governor's own political party, for him to resign, uh, and that his uh, that his uh, political authority and influence had eroded uh, beyond recognition, and that he would no longer effectively be able to lead as governor uh, with his credibility so diminished. And then, uh, in the days that followed, uh, new revelations came to light. Uh, The first, uh, if I remember my chronology correctly, the first that that the lieutenant governor, Justin Fairfax, uh, was alleged to have uh, committed a sexual assault. Uh, In the days that followed, uh, a second accuser came forward uh, to allege Uh, sexual assault uh, uh, allegations against uh, Lieutenant Governor uh, Fairfax, uh, and he is now embroiled uh, in that scandal too, with people calling for his resignation. And uh, finally, uh, the Attorney General, Mark Herring, so that is all uh, three individuals that we have in statewide elected office here in Virginia. Um, Attorney General Mark Herring acknowledged that when he was in college at University of Virginia in 1980, he too appeared in uh, blackface makeup, 
uh, uh, in a costume party where he was uh, impersonating the uh, rapper Curtis Blow uh, and, uh, and gave a, a tearful apology and acknowledgement about, uh, about his uh, previous uh, history with, uh, with, with that uh, uh, horrific uh, racial stereotype and insensitivity. And so now we have all three people uh, elected to statewide office here in Virginia embroiled in scandals with uncertainty about how it will all play out and what it will mean. And by the way, uh, the, the scandals extend beyond them uh, to, uh, to members of, uh, of, uh, of the uh, legislature. Uh, the uh, uh, Senate Majority Leader uh, is also accused to have uh, been the editor of a yearbook uh, uh, during which uh, he allowed many pictures of uh, people in blackface and other kinds of racial insensitivities to appear in the yearbook. This is a widespread and deep scandal. We don't know how it's going to play out. I do not have wisdom to share with you for what I think any one of those leaders should do. Should they resign? Should they not resign? How should we hold them accountable? Should they help be held accountable? I don't have really great answers to that question. Those strike me on some level as more political questions than moral questions. And I want to address, a, a, I think, a deeper moral question that, uh, that, that calls out to us from within this scandal. When the scandal around Ralph Northam first broke, what struck me about it on some level was not so much, I mean, it was, of course, the possibility, which even having grown up in the South myself, I couldn't really fathom or imagine. I never encountered anybody who, uh, who would think that it would be a good idea to uh, appear in blackface, much less next to somebody uh, dressed in uh, as a Ku Klux Klansman. Um, that struck me, of course, as problematic. But what was also problematic to me was the fact that this yearbook, through an editorial process and presumably with a faculty advisor, allowed that picture to be published in the first place. Similarly, in Mark Herring's case, right? actually we can talk about the continuation of the Ralph Northam saga that he could appear in San Antonio, Texas in 1984, impersonating Michael Jackson in black makeup, and win the costume, and win the dance contest, such that nobody there raised any objections to the fact that the person that they were voting for to win the dance contest was doing so appearing in blackface. That the Attorney General could attend a party at University of Virginia in 1980 wearing blackface makeup and presumably not get kicked out of the party and say, what the heck are you doing here dressed like that? Go home. You're an embarrassment. What is happening? And people said to me, oh, well, it was 1980. It was a different time. I wasn't born yet in 1980, admittedly. But listen, friends, let's be honest with each other to say that 1980 was not 1880. And even in 1880, it wouldn't have been okay and shouldn't have been permitted or tolerated. What it says to me, what it suggests to me, is that there is a deeper and more pervasive problem with a culture that promotes or at least tolerates racism, 
racist tropes, racist inclinations, or at least racial insensitivities. That is an issue that we have to deal with. And it's tempting to tell the governor to resign, the attorney general to resign, and think that because we've done that, or because they resign, that we've solved the problem. But the truth is, even if they resign, we haven't solved the problem. Virginia and the South have a history of doing this. Two weeks ago, when Rabbi Sharon Browse was here, I took her uh, after she landed to Richmond Hill, which is an incredible place if you've never been there. A, it's an ecumenical monastery now. It was originally a, a, a Catholic monastery uh, that, uh, that was founded after the Civil War when Richmond was burning. Uh, to uh, pray for the healing and welfare of the city. And they have a renewed mission since the 1980s as an ecumenical monastery uh, to uh, pray for the healing of the city and for the welfare of the city and to build a reconciliation within the city. And I've become connected with them uh, in, in, in a number of different ways. Uh, and I thought it would be a meaningful thing to take Rabbi Browse to Richmond Hill to meet with its founder, one of its founders, Reverend Ben Campbell. Uh, who is who literally wrote the book on uh, on Richmond's racial past and what it means for Richmond's present and future. If you haven't read Reverend Campbell's book, you should. I commend it to you. It's called Richmond's Unhealed History. Um, it's I think available on Amazon. You can find it. I have a copy here. You can show it to you as show and tell during Kiddush. So I had a meet with Reverend Campbell, and we stood at the end of Grace Street there in Church Hill, overlooking the city to the west. And what he pointed out to Rabbi Brous and I, as we were standing there, is that if, you look be, if we looked behind us, we could see St. John's Church, the top of Church Hill, one of the oldest buildings in the city, one of the most historic buildings in the city in which Patrick Henry famously gave his speech saying, give me liberty or give me death. We looked at that majestic steeple, absorbed that history. We looked out to the west. You could see on the next hill, the state house, the state capitol, designed famously by Thomas Jefferson who famously said, or at least made famous, the words of John Locke, that all men are created equal. We have these two monuments to the American ideal. Give me liberty or give me death. All men are created equal. Liberty and equality, freedom and human dignity. And right in the middle, in the valley, at the base of the hill, Shaco Bottom, where the nation's largest and most notoriously brutal slave market once stood. Now there's virtually nothing there anymore because in the years following the Civil War, the city, the city literally paved it over as a way of trying not to account for and deal 
with its history that stood in between but in direct opposition to, that belied the message of those twin hills that promote liberty and equality. Because the real history of Richmond includes both those ideals and the reality that made them into lies. The, rea the reality of exploitation and brutalization, the reality of slavery, and then ultimately of Jim Crow and segregation. A segregation, by the way, that continues to exist today, such that 50 years after Brown versus Board of Education, 50 years after school desegregation, schools in Richmond and throughout the Commonwealth are more segregated today than they were 50 years ago. Where 40% of African American children in Richmond live in poverty. A profound inequality that is not paralleled among the white population of Richmond. And so after the Civil War, and throughout the Jim Crow era, Richmond tried very hard not to deal and not to bring up, not to confront and not to rectify its history of oppression and racism. And tried to just move forward. And not only that, not only did they pave over that history, but they literally on top, well not exactly literally on top of it, but on top of it, figuratively I should say, there's like a big thing now in grammar to figurative versus literally, figuratively built on top of it monuments to the lost cause, which we still have today, lining Monument Avenue, towering statues of Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson and Jefferson Davis and Jeb Stewart, people who fought and died in the defense of human subjugation. And instead of confronting and acknowledging and attempting to reconcile the reality of our history, we paved over it and replaced it with a revisionist history that lionized the very people who were responsible for the racial challenges of the past. This is a problem that is not only about 1865, it's not only a problem about 1965, it is a challenge that continued throughout the 20th century, and even in some way still continues today as the inequalities born of that original sin sin continue to persist. Is it any wonder why it seemed perfectly acceptable in 1984 for a medical school yearbook to print a picture of an individual in blackface and in a Ku Klux Klan robe? Or why it was acceptable in 1980 for someone to attend a party at University of Virginia wearing blackface? Because it's still acceptable today that schools remain segregated and profoundly unequal. It's still okay today to have monuments lionizing the Confederacy at the heart of the former capital of the Confederacy. It's still okay today to 
build a highway that destroyed and separated a historically black community that in no way would ever have been considered to have been built through Tuckahoe. It's okay today for a massive jet engine sounding compressor to be built in order to facilitate a natural gas pipeline through Union Hill in Buckingham County, a historically African-American community built by former slaves that will destroy that community and destroy its health. But no one proposes to build it in West Hampton or Colonial Heights or Goochland. Why not? Because still today in the Commonwealth of Virginia and around the South and around the country, we have not fully grappled with the remnants of our racial past. And unless we do, unless we bring them to light and collectively work together to reconcile them, we can never move forward in a way that actually benefits everybody within our society. We read today in our Torah portion about the Mishkan, the tabernacle. I posed a question at the beginning of our Torah reading. We have this magnificent description of all of the objects that are supposed to be collected uh, and used to build this structure that's supposed to travel with the Israelites in the wilderness. But these are former slaves who are traveling in the desert, a barren desert. Where are they going to get gold and bdellium and lapis lazuli and dolphin skins and all of the things that they are supposed to contribute to building this mishkan? Well, the answer, I think, at least the simplest answer, well, other than, other than this is a mythology that is reconstructed later in history and is not necessarily historically accurate, that might be the simplest answer, but the second simplest answer is to look back a few chapters in Exodus when the children of Israel leave Egypt, what do they do? Depending on your reading of the text, they either despoil the Egyptians or they take from the Egyptians all of these beautiful goods and wealth that the Egyptians give them to take with them on their journey. In other words, they carry with them the remnants of the society that represented the greatest injustice that our Torah records. They carry with them the remnants of that injustice, the remnants of their oppression. They take it with them as they march toward their freedom. But then the Torah comes, then God comes when at Mount Sinai and says, take those things and give them all to me. And what are we going to do with them? We're going to build a sanctuary. Build for me a sanctuary, that I may dwell among you. Because with those objects, by truma, by lifting them up, bringing them out to light, and giving them over, repurposing them into something beautiful and purposeful and communal and just, then, and only then, can we finally cleanse ourselves of the lingering trauma and pain and injustice of Egypt. We take Egypt and we transform it into the sacred. That, to me, 
is a model for what we might do here in Virginia and around the country. To literally lift up, exhume, as we've done in Chaco Bottom, exhume the remnants of those historic injustices, bring them up to light, expose the truth, and by exposing the truth, build something together toward reconciliation. I'm inspired in the Torah portion that not only do we take these objects that we have brought from Egypt to build the tabernacle, but it is a collective communal project. Asuli mikdash. Bikul lachem truma. Take from all of them, at least those who are willing to give a truma, a gift. The asu, they should all build it for me a mikdash, a sanctuary. It is a collective project. It's not the project of just one individual. It's not just Moses' project. It's not a project of one leader, whether a leader that we can say, we're going to rely on you to absolve our, to resolve, to resolve our problems for us, or to be the scapegoat for the problems that are actually deeper than just you. And I'm not saying here about our current leaders what some have said in recent weeks, let he who is without sin or she who is without sin cast the first stone. That's not what our Torah says. Our Torah doesn't say that we can't hold people accountable just because we're flawed ourselves. We, of course, can. But it's also saying something deeper, that we all have a role to play in building the next iteration of our world and our society, that we all have responsibility in building a society and a structure in which we all participate and in which we can all benefit. That we all have a role to play in lifting up the injustices of the past and repurposing them into something good and true and holy. That is our task, that is our capability, that is our responsibility, not just to hang it on the hat of one individual, but to all of us participate in it. In 1864, in his second inaugural address, Abraham Lincoln famously said as the Civil War was hoping to come to a close, with malice toward none and with charity for all. It's a beautiful sentiment, one of the great speeches in American history. And who knows what would have happened if Abraham Lincoln had lived to fulfill the promise conveyed in that speech. But the truth of the matter is that the history uh, post-Civil War of our country and of the South was not one of malice and miserliness, but was rather one, ultimately, of attempting to ignore and to reward. And I wonder, what if Lincoln had said, with untruth for none and reconciliation for all, for us to actually lift up and tell each other the truth about our past, to lift up and bring it to the light of day so that we can together take it 
refashion it, repurpose it into something that is good, that brings us together, and that enables us to share in a future that is hopeful and prosperous and peaceful. Whatever happens with our current political leaders, and as embarrassing as it is to be in a state embroiled in this kind of controversy, let us pledge together and let us commit to hold our leaders accountable, all of them, to moving forward in a way where we know that the true embarrassment is our failure to collectively deal with the injustices of the past. And the best way forward, the one offered to us by our Torah portion this week, bring out the truth and work together to repurpose it.